You're listening to the Live Yes with Arthritis podcast, created by the Arthritis Foundation to help people with arthritis and the people who love them live their best lives. If you're dealing with chronic pain, this podcast is for you. You may have arthritis, but it doesn't have you. Here, you'll learn how you can take control. Our host is Rebecca Gillette, an arthritis patient and occupational therapist who is joined by others to help you live your yes. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Live Yes with Arthritis podcast. We're taking a summer break from the podcast and throwing back to some past episodes that have been popular and are definitely worth listening to. This time, it's about arthritis pain and surgery. Oftentimes, when you have osteoarthritis, surgery can sometimes be part of your treatment plan. And if you have other types of inflammatory autoimmune arthritis, surgery may also end up coming up as an option. In this episode, we discuss at what point surgery may be considered as a treatment and what you need to do to prepare for having a surgery. This episode originally released on June 2nd, 2020, and this discussion can help you as you navigate arthritis pain and weigh the risks and benefits of having a joint surgery. We are excited to talk about osteoarthritis today. There are so many people who suffer from osteoarthritis, and specifically our guest today specializes in osteoarthritis in the knees. And I don't know about you, Julie, but I know I've had a lot of knee issues over the years. And when your knees hurt, it is tough to get moving. It is tough to get moving. And it's so difficult when you're living with more pain in your knee because you use your knees every single day in every single way. It's a really complicated joint. And so sometimes it results in a need for a total knee replacement or surgery. And that's why we're talking with an expert today. Dr. Beyer is a board-certified orthopedic surgeon specializing in sports medicine, arthroscopic surgery of the knee, and total knee replacement. He's the medical director of Newport Orthopedic Institute and has been with the Hogue Orthopedics Institute since 2010. His passion for sports influenced his decision to pursue this specialty and thus excel in a vocation where preserving an active lifestyle is the key focus. He likes to say, motion is life. Over the years, Dr. Beyer has created numerous papers and presentations on sports medicine and joint replacement. He is also currently involved with clinical research as the principal investigator for two studies. And coincidentally, he's got lots of experience talking on a radio show like this one because he hosts a radio show called The Doctor in the Dugout, where he provides an entertaining twist on sports medicine-related topics and baseball. So thank you to Dr. Beyer for joining us on our episode today. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk about osteoarthritis with us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here, Rebecca. We're excited to kick it off. Can you just tell us a little bit about your specialty area of focus and what's exciting about it to you? So, well, everything's exciting about it. <laughs> many years, right? I am an orthopedic surgeon by training. I did my medical school at Georgetown University School of Medicine, my orthopedic residency at the Hospital for Joint Diseases in New York City. Uh, you could probably hear that I have that New York City background. <laughs> um, I did my a sports medicine fellowship following that 
at the Curlin Job Orthopedic Clinic out in LA, where I currently live, thinking I was going to go back to New York and be a sports medicine doc in New York. But I was in California for about a week and I realized there was no way I was going back. (laughs) So I've been in practice down here in Orange County for 39 something years. What I found as I've gotten older is that my patients are aging with me. So (laughs) I did anterior cruciate ligament reconstructions on and knee surgeries back 30 years ago, now currently are coming to me with arthritis in their knees. So I'm doing more and more total knee replacements for arthritis as I get older. So your practice kind of ages with you. (laughs) So if they're aging with you and you've seen them before, if they had an injury or a surgery earlier on at an earlier age, is that making them more prone to arthritis? The way we used to do anterior ligament reconstructions and even meniscal surgery, taking care of torn menisci, it was very, very prominent in terms of causing degenerative disease in the knee later on. But since the advent of a lot of arthroscopic surgery, especially the arthroscopic ACL reconstructions that we do these days, patients aren't necessarily doomed to getting degenerative disease and arthritis in their knee later on. So I think that we'll actually see a diminution in the occurrence of osteoarthritis in the knees as time moves on. We're certainly seeing a lot less patients with rheumatoid arthritis and other inflammatory arthritis conditions. Less of them are needing knee replacements than they used to 20 or 30 years ago. And that's because of pharmacological advancement. That's because of the immunobiologic drugs and a lot of things like that that we used to treat rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis now that we didn't have 30 years ago. The degenerative arthritis from prior surgery is going to decrease as well, except disclaimer here, (laughs) people are much more active now than they used to be 25 or 30 years ago. So those kinds of things drive a lot of the degenerative arthritis of the knees that we see as well. We're getting closer and closer to better medicine and better treatments. So can you tell us a little bit about what you commonly see in patients with osteoarthritis? What are some of those things that we see today and what do we maybe anticipate seeing later on? So the big driver that brings people to the orthopedic surgeon for osteoarthritis problems, and I'm going to focus mostly on the knee, pain is the big thing. No matter how bad somebody's knee looked on x-ray or other clinical findings, if they're not hurting, You don't do something big like a knee replacement on somebody. It's a big undertaking. So pain is number one. And then the question is, how much pain? I had a hip replacement myself six years ago. So I'm a really good kind of candidate to talk about what drove me to finally decide to have that surgery. It's when it's pain that's unremitting, that's waking you up at night, that's stopping you from doing something as simple as taking a walk around the block not just a little nagging pain that taking a couple of Advil or Tylenol take care of. So it's got to be significant pain. The other things that enter into this are sometimes deformity. You know, people will develop significant bow leg or knock knee deformities sometimes as their arthritis progresses. And sometimes you have to operate on them to correct those deformities. But pain is the number one biggest thing. How do you foster a conversation with a patient when you're asking them about their pain to make it comfortable for them to share some of those kind of lived experiences as it relates to how they're feeling? So that's a great question. And it's different for different people. Some people are very stoical 
and and their x-rays look so bad. You can't believe they waited this long to come and see you in the office. Other people, their x-rays don't look as bad, but they're experiencing a great deal of pain. Pain is in your brain. Pain is not in your knee or in your hip or somewhere else. To me, it's all about quality of life. What did you live to be 70 years old for if you have to just be housebound and you can't do anything? What kind of quality of life is that? We've come 180 degrees in how we deal with arthritis as physicians, as surgeons. Back when I was in my residency 40 years ago, if somebody had really severe arthritis, you told them to just shut it down. Just don't don't go on a long walk. Don't do this. Don't do that. It was all don't, don't, don't. Now we like to say, do, 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 because <laughs> we really feel that you're better off getting out there and pushing your knee and using your knee and exercising your knee rather than just shutting down, sitting on the couch, watching TV all day long. Yeah. And so when somebody does come in and they're having this pain, but they're not having the kind of pain you described as, yeah, I probably need a surgery, but they have pain. What things do you offer as ways to treat it and manage it to avoid surgery? And that's good to say because I am always very critical of people who see a patient for the first time and just say, boy, have I got an operation for you. There's a lot of things that you need to do. There's a whole algorithm you have to follow to take care of somebody with arthritis, which is a progressive disease. You start out with the very, very benign conservative measures, Tylenol, heat and ice. Some people respond better to heat. Some people respond better to ice. You have them try both. Physical therapy to try to strengthen up a little bit and move a little bit better. Then we can go to the next level of conservative intervention, which can be stronger anti-inflammatories, all of which have side effects. So you have to balance that. Steroid injections, cortisone injections, you have to balance that. There's a price to pay for steroid injections that are given too frequently. So there's a whole stepwise conservative approach that you should take before you jump into that final procedure which is the knee replacement. The knee replacement is the salvage procedure. That's what you do when nothing else is working anymore. We've done a couple of focus groups with patients who live with osteoarthritis and some of the loudest pieces of response that we hear from them are, I went to my doctor and he told me that I need surgery. And every time I go, I just feel like he's pushing this agenda of surgery, surgery, surgery. What advice might you have for a patient who has gone to see an orthopedic doctor and that has been the response that they've, they've received? A knee replacement or any joint replacement for that matter works best when the person who's doing it is really pretty expert at doing it. So first step, you want to find a doctor who has the appropriate training, is doing enough of these procedures that he has a pretty significantly high skill level. Number two, you want to look at the facility where you have it done. There are certain places facilities that have more expertise at these kinds of things than other places. Their infection rate is lower. Their complication rate is lower. The patient experience is better. The trend in America today is that more and more joint replacement is going to migrate to the outpatient surgery centers over the next several years, especially when we're sending people home the same day, 50% of the time. The, The problem is The outpatient surgery centers aren't always as well equipped as the hospital in terms of a big procedure like a joint replacement. The sterile processing capabilities of most outpatient surgery centers aren't as robust as the hospitals. They don't have all of the 
the once in a, in a blue moon instruments that you sometimes need if you run into an issue. If I'm a patient and I'm considering getting that total joint replacement at this particular juncture in time, is there a checklist of things that I should be asking myself about the facility so that I can do that safely? I think you should do the research. That research is publicly available. You can look at facilities and see what the number of procedures are that they do on each type of procedure, what their complication rate is, what their infection rate is. Those are all publicly reported numbers. And I think that anybody who's thinking about having an operation as big as a joint replacement should do that research. But the other thing that's very important is the trust level that you've built up with your surgeon. Every orthopedic surgeon is not the same. You got to find somebody who kind of you're clicking with, that you have faith in, you have trust in. And the other thing that I think is really important is shared decision-making. You need to be involved in this decision. You want the doctor to educate you and to tell you what the pros and cons are and what could happen, what, what likely won't happen, but at least educate you about it. But the ultimate decision is yours. I think the advice that you just gave is so important for people to hear because sometimes if you're a primary physician or somebody you know says, go see this doctor, they were the best, and you go, but you don't feel the same, that makes a difference. I had spinal surgery on my neck a couple years ago. I had three different opinions from three different doctors. Very different. Sounds a lot (laughs) like what you were talking about and describing earlier. And I landed on the third one because he sat there for about 15, 20 minutes explaining things to me. I had a failed fusion on one of my um, anterior fusions. And he said, why would we go back and do the same thing that already failed? And why would we do this option? Because that seems too extreme. You still are kind of young. And so I appreciated the fact that he explored all the options for me and then said, you think about this and then come back to me after you've talked about it with your family. You can't go to a surgeon that you don't feel comfortable with and you have to feel good about how it's going to affect you going forward. So thank you for saying that and sharing that with everybody. Well, my life is going to be easier if I haven't twisted the patient's arm to have something done or, you know, thank goodness it doesn't happen often, but everything doesn't go perfectly well as predicted. At least you've already illuminated the patient to that. They know that. And you have to portray a level of confidence and expertise that we're going to navigate through this together. And if I need help from one of my colleagues who might be more expert at something here, that's who we're going to employ as well. It's not just you're stuck with me through thick and thin and we'll figure it out. (laughs) Yeah, You got to know what you don't know. That's a really important thing in life, not just in medicine. That's something that patients really struggle with, right? It's hard to know what you don't know. It's hard to navigate when you're in pain and you're struggling to find the right person to help you out. And so your advice about finding someone that you can trust that's going to have that level of expertise is so vitally important. And when you couple it with that shared decision-making, I think it just really empowers patients to say, I can make a decision for my health to have a surgery or not have a surgery. I can make a decision for my health to find the right doctor for me. I wonder if you could share a little bit about what types of things patients need to know ahead of time, how they can do some of the research to prepare for the surgery itself, and what they should be thinking about not only up to the surgery, but also as it pertains to recovery and those next steps. From the time I see the patient and we make the decision to proceed with surgery, 
we give them a very carefully crafted book of exactly what your experience is going to be. Here's some exercises you can do preoperatively. Here's some do's and don'ts. Because a patient that goes into it knowing what to expect is going to have a better outcome than somebody who just gets surprised. So the preoperative education process is hugely important. Number two, optimizing the patient before surgery. The diabetic has to be well-controlled. You don't want them coming in with their blood sugar over 200 and, and this, that, and the other thing. Bad dentition. You want all that stuff to be taken care of preoperatively to lower the risk of infection. We culture all our patients' noses two weeks before surgery for MRSA to be sure that they're not carrying methicillin-resistant staph. These days, we're now culturing all our patients preoperatively for COVID three days before and waiting for a negative COVID test before we'll proceed with surgery. So all of these things that you do preoperatively make for a better outcome. Preparing the house for you for when you get home, safing your house up so there's not loose throw rugs around, furniture that's in the way, uh, a grab rail in the shower or next to the toilet if you feel you need it. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of, of cure. What's the, the hospital? What, what's the hospital experience like? How proficient is this hospital at doing things? What are their results? What are their outcomes? When you show up for surgery, you've been optimized, everything's taken care of, you're ready to roll. Most of our patients now for total hips and total knees, some, many go home the same day. Some go home after one night. At most, a patient that might be a little bit older goes home at two nights. But our typical hospital stay is zero nights to one night. I want to get the patients out of the hospital. They're probably just as safe in the hospital as they are at home. They're probably safer in the hospital than they are at Trader Joe's. But we want to get them out of the hospital because they just feel better being home and being in an environment that they know and are comfortable in. How do you do that? You do that by having a very, very well-choreographed pain management pathway, a multimodal pain management pathway, because the most common thing that keeps people in the hospital after a hip or knee replacement is pain. And, And to stay in the hospital just for pain management is crazy in today's times. So we do a lot of things. We do local blocks in addition to the regular anesthetic that they get. We do a lot of local infiltration of the area with local anesthetic and other substances to minimize the pain. We're trying to really, really decrease our use of opioids in this current climate that we live in. Opioids are kind of a no-no. If we can get away with no opioids, that's great. Sometimes for a couple of days, people need them. But we don't want to contribute to what is already a terribly devastating problem in the United States, which is opioid abuse. Postoperatively, we send physical therapy usually to the home for the first week or two because it's tough to get out and get into the car to go to PT four days after a big operation. So usually for a week or 10 days or maybe two weeks, the patient's getting physical therapy at home. And then we encourage outpatient physical therapy after that. You need a social network at home to help you, especially that first couple of days. Um, We're trying to avoid nursing homes these days, again, in the COVID environment that we live in right now. We're trying not to send any patients to nursing homes and skilled facilities if we don't have to. That's great. Do they have any PT or OT to talk about the things to change and have ready for surgery at home or exercises to do prior to surgery and kind of going over some of those things they should expect post-surgery? Yes. The preoperative booklet that we give them has those exercises in it. We'll sometimes use a prehab, what we call prehab visit or two for a patient to kind of get direction from a 
PT or an OT on what to do in the real world that we live in. You know, a lot of insurance plans, Medicare included, allow 18 PT visits a year and the two that you get preoperatively count. So I hate to use those up preoperatively when I really need them postoperatively. So we try to self-educate the patient as much as possible and not need the professional to do a formal visit preoperatively because we don't want to burn through their benefits when we want to use them postoperatively if we need to. You want to really extend their ability to see that physical therapist, see that occupational therapist when they need them. That's another part of those research questions that you can be asking yourself as you think about prepping for a surgery, right? What will my insurance plan cover? How many visits with a PT or OT do I have? And when do I want to have them? Your answers in the Arthritis Foundation's Insight Study one for adults and another for parents of kids with arthritis could lead to more effective care, more programs that meet your community's needs and help shape a powerful agenda that fights for you. Go to arthritis.org insights to take the survey. I wonder if you can comment on the long-term success after a total joint replacement. What do we expect to see from patients? Is it a cure-all? Is the arthritis gone? Tell me a little bit about that. Well, by definition, the arthritis is gone because the arthritis is the loss of their articular cartilage, the narrowing of the joint. So it's kind of bone on bone. There's no cartilage there anymore. That said, I'm not going to sit here and say, wow, this is a slam dunk, 100%. Everybody's back to doing everything. Most people, I'd say our current statistics on hips is probably 95 to 98% of hip replacements are, are what would be classified an excellent result. Knee replacements, maybe a few percentage points below that. The knee is a little bit more difficult articulation than the hip is. The hip is a simple ball and socket. It's a kind of real easy joint in terms of mobility. The knee is a much more complicated articulation. It, it bends and flexes, flexes and extends, and it also rotates a certain amount. So it's a much, much more complicated joint. Plus, it's not just about the arthritis. When arthritis has been sitting there for a long time, the soft tissues get stiff and tight and bound down and scarred. So a lot of the times, the postoperative issues of maybe a little bit of loss of motion or some residual pain comes from soft tissue problems that we're real good at, but not 100% at. So I'd say a knee replacement today's times, probably 90 to 95% do great. I had my hip done six years ago. I was back to work in 12 days. I was back to playing wow. golf about a month or five weeks. Uh, I never took anything stronger than a Tylenol. I'd call that an excellent result. Yeah, definitely. I would too. <laughs> an incredibly excellent result. My goodness. How important is it for people to really follow that post-rehab to see that kind of success of pain relief and that feel that the surgery was a success? It's extremely important because um, any surgical thing that we do in anything forms scar tissue. The way the body heals is by forming scar, okay? What you need to do on a joint is move that joint to prevent that scar from tightening and, and limiting your motion. So the, phys- the therapy afterwards is extremely important in keeping that person's joint moving to its optimum capability. 
We're not just sending the therapist to their house to torture them. We're sending the therapist <laughs> to their house to get the best result that we can get. Yeah, there's always that joke that the T in therapist for PT and OT is torture. So <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that term a lot. <laughs> They're not here to do anything but make sure that you can live the best life that you can and can recover in the fullest that you possibly can. Dr. Beyer, I wonder if you could comment on some of the best ways that folks who are right at the cusp of surgery can be managing their osteoarthritis pain right now if surgery just isn't an option based on where they live or based on the the pandemic and how it presents in their community. For a period of time, from March 20th to about May 1st, we were only doing urgent and emergent surgeries. We resumed only with patients who were Optimal candidates, no diabetics at first, uh, nobody over 70 or 75, uh, nobody morbidly obese, uh, those kinds of things that were risk factors for any surgery. So we started out with just kind of like the, the chip shots, the easy ones to get back into the flow and get things going and prove that we could do it without negatively impacting hospital resources for a possible surge in COVID. So we, as part of that whole regimen, insisted that patients be tested for COVID preoperatively when we resumed. As far as what a patient can do whose surgery was canceled or delayed or can't be done right now, you go back to the pre-surgical stuff. You can get your doctor and get a cortisone shot if you really need it to just really tide you through. We will not do a surgery on somebody within six to eight weeks of a cortisone shot. So realize if you get that shot, I'm not having this surgery for another six to eight weeks. We can use topical uh, pain bombs, uh, a lot of people using CBD and a lot of other things like that for topical application. We trying to avoid opioids as much as we can and letting people just go with the extra strength Tylenol, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and things like that. A certain percentage of people right now are scared of going to the hospital because yes. of everything. They've seen all the stuff on TV. They think that anybody who goes into the hospital is doomed. They don't want to be anywhere near any hospital, even if it's just an orthopedic hospital. And I respect that. I understand that. Um, a certain percentage of people will say, well, I just had four weeks without working. I can't take another month off now and have my knee replaced. Yeah, I got to get back to work. I respect that too. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about what you're seeing in your clinic. The Arthritis Foundation actually conducted a recent survey from patients about managing their arthritis during this COVID crisis and what that looks like. And the results show that 27% of the patients surveyed are afraid to visit their doctor's office for fear of contracting the virus. Over a third, so about 36% of OA patients surveyed canceled and or skipped their healthcare provider appointment during this COVID crisis. Over half of these reported that they skipped or canceled because they are scared of getting the virus. What are you telling patients who call and say, we're afraid to come to you or we're afraid to go get a surgery? What would you say to them in this regard if they're at the point where they really do need that surgery? So I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, it's safer now than it was before, but it's certainly as safe as it was before. And we're testing the people for active COVID at the time that they come in three days before. So I think that those fears are unfounded. Uh, like I said, we're avoiding nursing homes. We're not going to put anybody in that environment in the current times. So I really think that it's a function of where the rest of their life is right now. So let's talk a little bit more about pain management with our current COVID situation. We want to tell you to get moving and get active. 
And we know that when you're limited to staying home, if you're at a shelter in place, you kind of are limited in the activities that you can do. Are you seeing that having an effect on the patients that you talk to and what advice you might have for them? Absolutely, yes. Not everybody has a stationary bike at home. Most of them belong to a senior center or a gym or something where they have access to those things. I encourage people as much as possible with arthritis to get in the pool, to get in the water, because that, that's the best place there is to exercise. You're not fighting gravity. You're getting the resistive effect of the water. But unfortunately, most people don't have a private pool in their house. So they also don't have that access right now. So it is a problem. I mean, yes. anything you can to keep moving. We say motion is life. That's our slogan. And I think that, you know, people just got to make the best of a bad situation. Yeah, it's really tough. I tell them, get in a tub, fill it up and just start moving your joints while you're sitting in the tub if you can, so that you can at least get some movement going if it hurts too much on land. People are concerned about maintaining their treatment plans for osteoarthritis um, and their medication regimens in this current environment. Am I at risk for infection if I continue to take whatever medication I'm on? What is your advice on that? For osteoarthritis, the immunobiologics aren't used very much, but for certainly rheumatoid, psoriatic arthritis, and, and other inflammatory arthritis, a lot of people these days are on the immunobiologics. I usually tell people to discontinue those two weeks or so before surgery, and then wait two or three weeks if they can handle that after surgery, just to minimize that immunosuppression that accompanies all of those meds. So I think people have to weigh the, the benefits and risks of that very, very carefully in discussion with their rheumatologist or whoever's managing their underlying disease and the prescription of biologics. Most of the hormonal therapies do increase the risk of someone having blood clots and, and deep vein thrombosis, which is a complicating factor after a hip or knee replacement. So those things have to be altered now too, especially if people have delayed their surgery. I mean, all those things have to be kept in front of mind in terms of when you're going to do this and how does this affect the medications that I usually take. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful kind of illustration of what you should be thinking about in terms of maintaining your treatments. I wonder if you could project where we could go in terms of treating osteoarthritis and the research that's out there and the things that we're seeing, medical advancements that might help have similar progress to those immunobiologics. Do you have a pulse on that at all? Sure. I think part of degenerative arthritis, osteoarthritis is wear and tear. Okay. And we wear and tear more than we used to wear and tear 40 years ago. We're much more active. We're more obese as a population than we were 40 or 50 years ago. That's going to increase the incidence of osteoarthritis. There's also a genetic component to osteoarthritis. I think that post-traumatic osteoarthritis is very big. If somebody fractures their knee when they're 40 years old, let's say they have a tibial plateau fracture in an auto accident. And if that knee is not put back together absolutely perfectly in terms of the articular surface, if it's off even two or three millimeters, that person has a huge higher incidence of getting osteoarthritis in that knee later on. Someday we'll have the stem cell thing figured out where we'll actually be able to grow new cartilage and, and prevent arthritis from expressing itself as badly. That day's not today. And we all have our fingers crossed and hope for when that's going to happen. Yeah, we're hopeful for something better always. 
for all types of arthritis. You mentioned post-traumatic osteoarthritis, and that's something that, since you are in sports medicine, you know, of course, better than we do. It's not uncommon in athletes, and when they're injured, even younger, teenagers and in their 20s, what is the likelihood that they are going to develop osteoarthritis in time by the time they're in their 30s or 40s, let's say? I think that goes back to what I also said about the genetic predisposition. How come some people can run 10 marathons a year and they have no arthritis at all in their hips or knees and other people, as soon as they try doing some long distance running, boom, they're in the doctor's office. That's adding the environmental influence to the person who had the genetic predisposition. People have to see what they can handle, what they tolerate. And if running's not the right thing for them, they've got to find something else that's going to give them that endorphin rush that's going to also accomplish the cardio effects and everything else that they get from running. So back to the post-traumatic arthritis. Why do some athletes get an arthritis uh, after pitching, say, for 20 years or a football player who dislocates his hip? For people like that, is joint replacement ultimately the best option for them at some point? Well, not when he's in his 20s, that's for (laughs) sure. Yeah. When people have to get a joint replacement because of uh, post-traumatic OA, are they likely to have a repeat one later in life? So that's changed a lot. Our current generation of components look like they're lasting 30 years or maybe longer. We don't know. We haven't been doing them that long. So I feel much more comfortable doing a 50-year-old's hip or knee now than I did 20 years ago or 15 years ago. I know that's always a concern for people like me with uh, degenerative disc disease. You know, I've had three surgeries on my neck now and I'm only in my mid 40s. Am I going to have to have another one before I'm 60? So trying to do things to avoid that for sure, always a concern to have to come back. You don't want to go through that again, right? The only thing worse right. than a first surgery is a second surgery. <laughs> that's right. Or third. Or third. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Whenever you need help, the Arthritis Foundation's helpline is here for you, now offering support in Spanish and other languages. Whether it's about insurance coverage, a provider you need help from, or something else, get in touch with us by phone, toll-free at 800-283-7800. Or send us an email at arthritis.org slash i-need-help. Dr. Beyer, what are your top three takeaways for people with osteoarthritis? I think number one is balance in your life. And that's balance in your nutrition, which is going to help control your weight and other diabetes and other factors. Balance in your exercise, which is just going to keep you generally well-fit and well-maintained. And balance in terms of your mind. You know, it's crazy for a 60-year-old to think, I'm going to go out, run a four-minute mile. So I think it's all about balance and just keeping things real. You know, just keep your expectations real and the rest will follow. I love it. Keep it real and keep it balanced. But those are hard things to do sometimes. (laughs) I think that's a really good piece of advice. Keep it real. Keep it real in all the different areas of your life and get that balance. Accomplish that balance wherever you can. I just love it. Dr. Byer, thank you so much for all of your advice today. This has been really, really great. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Olivia's with Arthritis Podcast is independently produced by the Arthritis Foundation to help people living with arthritis and chronic pain live their best life. People like you. 
for a transcript and show notes, go to arthritis.org slash podcast. Subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch. 